Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Charles Fry. Not only has Charles volunteered to be a judge on our month of MLOps competition happening right now, he's part of the core team working on the full stack deep learning course, which I heartily recommend to you all. Naturally, we get into education for practitioners, as well as the things that Charles has seen in his own prior background working on production use cases. I really hope you enjoy the show. So I had a kind of pretty circuitous route to end up in machine learning. I, in undergrad, in college, I really thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, and so I did a pre-med uh, course of study. And I did biological research and psychological research. I gave people MDMA and asked them how they felt about it. Um, and I shot lasers into mouse brains to see what the neurons were doing. Um, and while I was doing that, I was getting more and more interested in what the meaning of intelligence and perception and cognition was. Uh, and it became more and more clear that we didn't really understand it well enough to figure out um, by reverse engineering mice or undergrads. Uh, and so I got into machine learning from there and did a PhD at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, in the neuroscience department, uh, kind of as a as a double agent or um, uh, or as part of a above a pivot from neuroscience to neural networks, it's got neural in the name, so it's got to be neuroscience. And um, studied in the end optimization theory for neural networks. What, how can we prove that they converge, that they don't get stuck, that they don't give like completely incorrect answers? Is there a way to understand that? Worked with some physicists who had some physics-based theories um, and did some some sort of numerical experiments on that. Um, and uh, as I was doing all these experiments, it was like, man, I am like tracking this in a Google Sheet. I'm running like four different Jupyter servers to try and pass information back and forth. This is this is really unpleasant. And so I came across weights and biases really late in doing my work, but um, it's too late to incorporate it myself, but early enough that I could join them when it was still a small company of 15 or 20 people, um, and then do work on documentation, developer relations, um, like internal product and, and a little bit of engineering stuff, um, and sort of work on this tool for making that kind of experiment management flow much easier. Uh, and after working there for two years, um, I uh, left to do this work with full stack deep learning uh, to sort of focus a lot more on the education side of things and less on the like product uh, development and the developer relations side of things. So yeah, now teaching this online class, full stack deep learning, covering how to build ML powered products. We'll, we'll definitely track back to that, of course. Um, I'm curious since you have this kind of science um, background, to what extent do you feel like that is a um, useful, like on the spectrum of useful to essential in terms of the work that you do now? Because, you know, data science does have science in the in in, in there somehow. And, you know, the whole... The whole art of you know the scientific method doing experiment how do we know when what we're doing is is actually having an effect all of these things are actually quite important and they seem to be quite often like the real kind of core gotchas where people are 
doing something really wrong or fooling themselves that what they're doing in ML is. So yeah, I, I'm just um, yeah interested in how, how that's kind of played out for you. Yeah, um, I would say on the one hand, like it's like completely informed the way that I think about about data, about modeling of data and about decision-making um, is informed by considerations around hypothesis testing and around inference in general, um, like real inference, not inferencing on NVIDIA's latest uh, hardware. Um, but the like research is not that good of a model for what ends up happening inside of like in industrial applications. People barely even want the right answer in science. They barely care about that, uh, actually doing it correctly and getting the right answer. Uh, and they care even less about that in um, in industrial settings. So the kind of like hardcore training on modeling is maybe less useful than I'd like it to be uh, for, um, for being able to like uh, design negative controls or to build causal models uh, that can or, or design a, a randomized controlled trial for a claim about what will move user engagement metrics. So those things that maybe one would hope would transfer from the best parts of the scientific community over into data science maybe don't transfer as well as they as they should. Though uh, I think it'd be it'd be better for everybody if they did. Maybe you could just unpack what you said there just a little bit earlier about kind of people not wanting to get to the real answers about things. Um, yeah, how how can people be doing useful things without kind of reaching real answers? What then is going on in industry? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think there's there's like a cynical take and an optimistic take. Um, maybe this, the the cynical take is that the you know the role of a lot of scientists and academics is to consume grant money and to produce uh like shared narratives of how the world works uh which may or may not actually reflect how the world works and there's a similar role for the the data scientist as the person who convinces everybody that the charts are going up into the right for good reasons not for bad reasons um and to sort of like launder the uncertainty that is inherent in um, you know, running a business and dealing with partial observations into a feeling of certainty in the form of white papers or um, or like uh, nice-looking streamlit apps. So the, the, like, there definitely is some of that cynical, you could see that sort of cynical side of things in operation in academia and industry. But the, like, the optimistic take is that maybe the, the really precise like this, the search for truly super precise answers and super precise knowledge that maybe draws a lot of people into science and drew me into science uh, is not always the most useful thing. Getting the getting a ninety percent correct answer and like acting on it and seeing what happens is maybe better than waiting six to twelve months longer to set up a a full RCT to test whether the button should be blue or green. Um, so. Uh, so, yeah, the optimistic take is maybe that even though people may think that they are like aiming for for the precise answers about what's going on inside a business or what's going on inside of a organism they're studying, it's uh, 
what they're actually doing is getting a sequence of approximate answers that mix with other people's approximate answers to get some approximation of the truth over time. And I mean, you do you do have um, some kind of an iteration cycle and experimentation going on within you know re- real world use cases, and um, maybe we'll talk about this more again. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of curious, like the extent, you know, the balance between the risks of moving too quickly with these kinds of things versus um, being a bit more cautious. Um, I mean, in the end. I guess it's someone's money on the line there, perhaps if you're not looking for real answers, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's something I've seen. Maybe is something that should have been more obvious when doing research, but something that's become very painfully obvious uh, moving from research to industry in the last couple of years, that there is this very delicate balance between writing a library with no bugs in it um, and writing a library uh, that nobody uses. Like, uh, it doesn't matter if the code is perfect and has a beautiful abstraction if it's never executed. Um, And so that uh, I've seen organizations that sort of fall on different parts of that spectrum and you know, different cases where it's more important to move quickly than it is to move correctly in cases where it's like very critical to to move very carefully. And so just as examples, I've worked in um, in places touching on healthcare and there it's really important to move carefully and and to be confident that your claims are correct. Um, if you're deciding uh, what the best resource allocation is for resolving user churn, it's okay if you make some mistakes. Uh, so there are there may be some guidelines around stakes, uh, around reversibility uh, that maybe tell you where you should likely land on that spectrum. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, education um, since you know you're you're pretty deeply involved in that um, and feel free to to take a diversion into to talking a little bit about full stack deep learning uh, sure. if uh, if you feel it's it's part of the answer but um, yeah we've had a lot of kind of guests on and I often like to ask people about kind of what is needed in terms of educating the next generation of people who are coming in um, I guess you see a lot of those faces um, coming through the course uh, particularly at, at the moment yeah I'm kind of What's your take on what's what's needed? What are the the, the core skills and fundamentals that people need to be uh, learning? Yeah. Um, so my answer to this is going to be at a very very high level, maybe galactic level, uh, which is I think the primary concern with education right now is that it is one of the industries that is seeing costs rise over time. Relative to uh, relative to inflation, relative to other the prices of other goods, um, you know some of the examples of things that have seen costs go down are things like televisions. Um, anything that looks like a widget you can build in the factory, costs are going down. But lots of services, education and medicine, being two of them, uh, the prices are going up over time. And given the clear importance, the critical importance of education for finding, you know, useful, well remunerated, uh, maybe even, you know, joyful work in the 21st century, that's, that's untenable, we have to do something about this. 
And so for me, what that looks like is trying to design ways that education, you know, can look different than the traditional university, than the traditional school with degrees, because it seems like that system is not adapting well um, and is one perhaps one of the causes behind this increase in cost. And so the I think as people who are teaching in computer science, we have an opportunity to bring some of our skills to bear on this problem, skills around automation and scaling, um, while at the same time recognizing that automation and scaling bring decreases in quality if they're not done carefully and thoughtfully. Uh, so if you're going to scale up your class, you should probably think about how to replace some of the human interactions that you were able to have with students when it was just 50 students, if it's going to be, uh, if it's going to be 500 students. So there are tools for that. There are, uh, you know, the, we all learned in the pandemic, maybe more things about, uh, about sharing video than we wanted to learn. Uh, that's, that's one way of doing it. There are, uh, interactive tools around streaming that can improve that experience and make it um, and make it more intimate and more pleasant uh, to teach 500 or a thousand people over the internet than it would be to teach 500 or a thousand in person. Um, and then there are uh, maybe best practices around automating grading, automating feedback both from the sort of general computer science toolkit with things like testing, test suites with good documentation turn out to be uh, very good, uh, home, basically homeworks. Uh, and then maybe looking a little bit further down the line uh, within machine learning, we are building these super high quality language models that are capable of generating text. We're building things that can generate images. Incorporating those into our teaching workflows are another way to sort of close the gap between what can be done at the scale of thousands of students, tens of thousands of students, and what can be done at the scale of, of dozens. How, how close do you think we are to that vision? I, I mean, because a cynic, I guess, would, would perhaps push back and say, you know, we're good at some things and we're good at certain things where maybe a lot of people have focused attention on, but perhaps, um, yeah, other things, perhaps things which involve spinning up infrastructure or things which are a bit closer to what, you know, real world industry looks like. We're maybe not so good at giving people that experience. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe the answer is, you just need to go and experience it and, you know, stand in the large hand-drawn collider or, or whatever. Like, you you need to, like, yeah, th there's no way of replicating that. But, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think the solutions to that are probably technical. And those those feel like things that will be solved over time as these technologies stabilize and become more mainstream like it is only within the last couple of years that there are things like Replit and Google Colab that allow you this like free experience for interacting with a Jupyter notebook or a, or a developer environment that are like that are like dead simple to get started and and mess around with. I would say that the the like Replit of setting up your AWS web service, um, your your 
Redis backed hot dog or not dog, um, the, the replit of that experience is yet to be built because we are still solving like fundamental problems in like what it means to do, um, like to do cloud development. So people are building the like abstractions, people are building the wrong abstractions and realizing that they're the wrong abstractions and going down different paths. Uh, so I think that will solve some of those problems there. Um, I think the, what I identify as one of the primary problems is maybe a bit more of complacency on the part of people doing education in that it works well enough um, there, you know, it's, you can, you can make a living on it and, uh, and have a career without having to tackle these, um, these like broader problems around scale and automation. Yeah, it feels like there's not an, not sufficient pressure to make that happen. Do you see, um, do you see code as kind of the endpoint or the, uh, the code level? Uh, Cause you know, there are other people in this space who believe that we need to kind of go, beyond the level where people need to 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 code and where you know really if if this this kind of field is going to uh, grow and, and be useful and have use cases outside a small group of people then yeah then then you need to 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 have ways to interact with these concepts and these these ideas and so on which don't require someone to yeah know how to, to program yeah i definitely am sympathetic to that idea it and the rise of large language models that understand both natural languages and code uh, does suggest a way forward for that. But my resistance to that really comes from the fact that one of the primary features of code is its absolute precision. And maybe an indication of just how precise computer code is, is that there is a movement in mathematics to move over towards writing proofs in these like proof programming languages, languages like Agda or Lean. And people find bugs in mathematical proofs. Um, people derive additional insights into the like mathematical structures that they're considering by this attempt to be like so pedantically precise that a compiler can follow your mathematical proof. And not everything needs to be specified at that level of precision. There's there's room for vibes in addition to room for for this kind of uh, extreme precision. But it seems like such an incredibly useful intellectual tool for people to learn to be able to be that precise. Uh, to learn to be able to explain something so well that a rock with electricity in it can can follow what you just said. And so that doesn't mean that machine learning can never be low code or never be no code, but I would be saddened maybe by the loss of opportunity there if we move fully away from using code to program computers over the next 20 or 40 years, we have had this last 80 or 90 years of people discovering um, just how much more you learn by being absolutely precise. Uh, and I don't think we have even gotten close to squeezing all the juice out of that fruit. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's some kind of an 80-20 thing going on there where a lot of people would be able to do some very useful things with, you know, something good enough um, that had the right kind of guardrails and so on that people don't do things that don't make any sense. Um, 
but then yeah you know obviously there is as you say immense power in being able to express things precisely and describing the exact problem that yeah you were working on yeah absolutely um, what what have you found works uh, in terms of education? I mean, you, you you mentioned a few things, you know, using tests as a way of kind of, um, again, kind of offering some kind of guide rails or, f- or feedback on things. Um, what, are the, what are the kinds of things that you found um, students benefit from? Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely the, the very direct benefit of incorporating testing into homeworks is the short latency of the feedback, right? This is something that if we, you know, if we go to train our reinforcement learning algorithms, we become like very intimately familiar with the problem of delayed feedback uh, and the difficulties that that introduces. This is something that also applies for, uh, for humans who are learning. They need to be told when they've made a mistake as quickly as possible before the mistake gets ingrained. And so like, Completing an assignment, submitting it, and getting a grade with feedback is worse than while you're submitting the assignment, you immediately get feedback as you're going. That's like, that's incorrect. Try this. Or I think you ran into this issue. Um, And uh, both of those are far inferior to the sort of like traditional uh, approach. Um, You might call it the batch grading approach as opposed to the streaming grading approach uh, where you collect up all the homework from everybody, you grade all of them, and then you give it back to them a week later. And they no longer remember why they thought that for loops um, ended with a semicolon, right? Like that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's it's just a much more difficult signal to learn from, and people need to like develop specific tools for for learning uh, in order to make use of those learning signals. Uh, but outside of that, I can't say that I like that's that's a belief about teaching that I think is evidence based. Um, there's there's studies on this, and this is something that the CS61A, the intro flagship intro computer science uh, course at UC Berkeley, has done pioneering research and tooling work on. Uh, most of my other beliefs about teaching are not nearly so evidence based, um, but I think the maybe the, maybe the most important component of my style is is bringing in a sort of like richness and joy to the content that's you know by default load testing is not um is not richly imbued with context um or fun uh but with you know uh, with the right perspective with a consideration of the history the etymology and anthropology of of computer science and programming with um, uh, you know, with a creative eye to connections to other fields or um, or opportunities for analogy or humor, it can become a, a lot more fun. And that's something that has been important for me when uh, when when finding material to learn from. Uh, and so I think uh, I've incorporated that into into my teaching. To what extent is the kind of the social or a group element part of that that kind of atmosphere uh, i don't know I've, I've always found the courses where i'm participating live with a cohort or something are i'm more likely to finish them i'm i usually get more out of them i remember more out of them if there's other people around yeah absolutely that's that's a very strong uh evidence-based um 
a bit of it uh, of education yeah i would say that that's that i've i've struggled with a little bit like it's difficult to create community on the internet it's you know something that we all come across like successful working communities on the internet, right? There's this airplane meme kind of situation where we see, or to be less Twitter about it, there's a survivor bias issue where we see the communities that have succeeded and we see what they look like at that mature stage. They're very low touch. They're very open. There's all the city going on in them. Anybody can just drop in and participate in them. I'm thinking of Gitters and Zulips and Discords and subreddits, like they look a certain way once they are ready to go. And that's where 90% of people interact with them at that point. But the challenge with creating a community in which you can have these kinds of educational experiences more broadly than just a class cohort, but an actual community of learners like FastAI has built, for example, the beginning stages look very, very different. They're much higher touch. The kinds of people who are participating look different. And so what needs to be done in order to bridge that gap is unclear because we maybe also get a chance to see lots of failed communities. There's some kind of scale-free or power law thing going on here where there's a large number of small failed communities. We get to see lots of that. And then for a long period of time, there are these large successful communities, but the kind of intermediate state the unstable intermediate is not something that we get a chance to see, but it's really critical for anybody who's interested in building community to understand that transition. And I guess it's easy to to somehow believe or, 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 or see that transition as somehow being organic or like the way it developed as being organic, but actually probably there's like a few people who are working really, really hard somehow, uh, whether it's work or not, like th th there's activity going on to, to kind of keep it in a certain direction. Yeah, exactly. I guess this is just, I'm really feeling this chemistry analogy here. So I'm going to dive in on it, right? You have your initial state and your final state, and there's only this brief moment of the intermediate state, the transition state between the two. Uh, and the the way biology solves the problem of making reactions go the direction it wants at the speed it wants is by creating really complex machinery to make a reaction that would maybe like normally go at a at a certain rate um happen at orders of magnitude higher rate by constructing this complex protein machinery a catalyst that holds the molecules in just the right spot so that that transition state is stable and you switch from the uh, the reactants to the to the product, and you get the product that you want. Um, so that's uh, <laughs> despite being the way biology does it, it's uh, what we would call inorganic um, in terms of community formation. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you you teach in full stack deep learning. Um, uh, we were having a little chat earlier about this, mm -hmm. and, and it's definitely. Uh, I think one one of the best places online, I think, to to come into contact with a lot of these things. Um, uh, yeah, th there aren't so many so many places where you can get kind of modern, up to date um, um, kind of best practices. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, that that means a lot coming from you. Um, the there are a couple of different pieces of the like full stack learning ethos. So the goal is to teach people the entire stack 
uh, required to build a deep learning powered product. So that goes from data collection and annotation through modeling and training and then selecting uh, the like these trained models, deploying them onto cloud infrastructure and setting them up as a as a web service so that you can get user feedback and then using that user feedback to kind of close the loop and go back to data collection and annotation and create a sort of like iterative continual improvement process. So there, this idea of kind of moving as quickly as possible in order to get the feedback that makes improvement possible is a very like kind of core theme. I think it's easy to kind of get stuck on collecting data, get stuck on building models and never really answer the question of whether you're making something that somebody actually wants or needs. Um, this is maybe most acute for these kinds of web services that we focus on since that's the happiest path for development and deployment of machine learning models. But it also applies if you're building, you know, an edge device, something that sits on a robot or or a, or a medical device. Maybe the details are, are different, but the principles are the same. And then... Because we're trying to cover this this whole broad stack, I think some people can cover that entire stack, and and there is room and and there is a very important role for people who can be experts or near experts in everything from GPU training to AWS Fargate. Uh, but not everybody is going to be able to be that. And what's maybe more important is that people know enough about the entire stack to recognize what the core problems are to make connections across a team um, in order to be able to maybe even just Google uh, to find the Stack Overflow snippet that solves their problem that they wouldn't be able to, to um, uh, they wouldn't think to Google that they wouldn't uh, think is a problem unless they'd been exposed to it. So uh, because of that, we have kind of uh, an ethos of mere exposure uh, in a lot, of the, a lot of the cases. We don't have time to go into like, excessive detail about how to build a feature store and which feature stores are the best. But we can tell you about feature stores and say, these are the cases where feature stores have turned out to be really important. If you have both streaming and batch features and there's a possibility of disjunction, feature stores are going to be important. If that doesn't look like what, you, uh, what you're doing, uh, don't think about this. Um, and um, yeah, look up, look up Feast uh, if, if it is. Uh, so yeah, so those are some some of our main principles. I guess the last thing I would say is, like many others, we are we try and point towards kind of data data centric modeling, uh, data centric ML, uh, which is to say, like really focusing on visualizing during training, visualize the inputs and outputs of your model to detect bugs. Uh, during model evaluation, don't just calculate your beloved metrics of ORAC and uh, and precision and recall and uh, and everything else, look at some of the examples. Build a user interface around your model so that you can put data into it and see what comes out as soon as possible, where the goal is that the data allows you to actually probe the model as a function, as an input-output map, rather than just treating it as something that is the, um, the widget in your DAG that produces metrics. Um, and then with users collecting user data 
um, the uh, as um, as best you can, both like feedback from users and like the literal input data and output results from your model, uh, like focusing on collecting that stuff and having it available for debugging models for improving user experience. Uh, so I guess the yeah the uh, third pillar here is um, like a, a data orientation and a kind of like even maybe uh, like data visualization and data interactivity orientation. To what extent? I mean, you were talking about earlier about um, how how the the abstractions and, and and somehow our knowledge and understanding of how to do things um, in in this field is is changing and updating as. Well, as time passes, to what extent can we talk about um, kind of foundational practices or best practices, or is it just a case that you know a lot of these things? Once you dig in, dive into the details, you just you know you have to have been exposed to this weird edge case and to know that this behaves in this weird way, and in the end, everything is kind of artisanal and weird down at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. There's always, I think, a last mile problem which is um, the the details are always different and that's where you find the devil. But the yeah, there there is this iterative process of discovering the best practices as a field that that solve the 80% of the problems uh, and allow us to focus on the details that matter for our particular case. So I would say so like some aspects of this really are getting better and have gotten a ton better in the last couple of years. I would say that model training feels way way cleaner than it used to be and it's and I feel more comfortable telling people like yeah, use one of these high-level frameworks in PyTorch that's Lightning or Hugging Face. Um like use one of these and it'll cover pretty much everything you need to do. You know, people aren't training large language models necessarily using these off-the-shelf open-source training frameworks. But you know, I bet you could train stable diffusion pretty easily if you uh, if you wanted to with with Lightning or or Hugging Face or your uh, or Keras. Mm -hmm. um, so it does feel like for some parts of the stack that have had a longer time to marinate and a longer time for people to uh, uh, smash <laughs> themselves against rocks. Yeah, um, we we have found good answers. Um, uh, yeah, infrastructure provision has gotten a lot better. Um, like maybe maybe not infrastructure pr pr provision, but at the very least, it's uh, it's easier to train on on eight or thirty two GPUs than it was five years ago. Um, and so that's that's been solved. Maybe maybe some of this uh, infrastructure as code still feels like a vision than it does uh, like a practice. Uh, and that's something that's changing quickly. Uh, and then, oh, the, one of the other things that really seems to have improved quite a bit is building user interfaces for um, for for models, like basically getting your simple web app off the ground. Uh, that's something. There's now there's now multiple options in Python. We have Gradio and Streamlit as options. There, there's more tooling around this in uh, in JavaScript. Not as familiar with it, but I've, I've seen more tooling around these things that make it possible. And that, again, it's not going to cover every problem. Like Streamlit is not the right solution for um, for everything. You don't want to build uh, Google search in Streamlit. Um, but you can get a lot of things done really quickly with Streamlit or Gradio that would have been a blocker for a long time previously. Uh, so those, those things, I feel they're... 
there are substantial improvements. We are still waiting on the right answers in a lot of places. A big one is inference, like actual infrastructure for inference feels very immature right now, um, both in terms of having a high level library that can do the stuff that people are currently doing and even in terms of what people are doing. Uh, like microservices and scale to zero serverless architectures are very standard now um, for non-accelerated workloads, but it's you know extremely difficult, if not almost impossible, to uh, to have serverless GPUs. Like there are people are building this, but it is um, it is a very rough around the edges technology. Being able to treat one GPU as though it were multiple smaller GPUs. That's something that's just like um, like built into the way people design with CPUs that uh, and has been incredibly successful. Um, that's something that we can't do with uh, with GPUs and and other accelerated inference. Uh, so so that's I, I think a good example of a place where we really need better uh, better tooling at a very fundamental level, and then also better abstractions built on top of that fundamental tooling. And just to add, I mean. Something which I've noticed, even in even in the past year, which um, is is kind of my my professional exposure to 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 a lot of this stuff, the data centric approaches to model evaluation and data evaluation, like you were saying, debugging what's going on. I feel like there's just been this explosion of tooling, uh, which definitely feels like it's in the early stages, and there's there's a lot of potential and ways to go. But still, like there are, there's a whole bunch of tools and things which which weren't available before, which make make certain things easier. One hundred percent, yeah. I think there's there's a there's a bootstrapping thing there that's um, maybe more obvious here than it is in other uh, other technical domains, where like vector databases. So being able to search a database of images based off of its uh, semantic content, like obviously that relies on good models of images that we can construct these embedding vectors. Um, and so, you know, you couldn't have built a useful vector search database before AlexNet. And um, uh, yeah, and I think that points to a broader thing where there's a wave of tools maybe coming online now and in the next couple of years that make more use of these extremely high quality models that are being built of images and text to improve the process for building other models. So if I have, maybe, you know, it's infeasible for me to, if I'm deploying to a mobile phone or even if I'm, uh, you know, just a more lean organization, it's infeasible for me to run GPT-3 on everything, right? Uh, but I can use the embeddings and outputs and features of large language models like GPT uh, type models to uh, to like understand the errors my model is making. Um, and these like large multimodal models are even more promising on on that front, uh, and even more infeasible maybe to run uh, on your uh, on your cheaper hardware. Um, so that's you know that kind of virtuous cycle of of bootstrapping of improving our models using our models um, is I think a really exciting direction for ML tooling, which so far has looked a lot more like how do I build the uh, GitHub for ML? How do I build the Docker for ML? How do I adapt Docker for ML? Um, those kinds of things important, but maybe not as 
maybe exciting for their, you know, exponential growth features as models helping us make models better. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just um, uh, recently last last week I watched the the lecture you gave on testing um, from the from the course actually, and that also feels like sort of an area where. Um, I guess now that certain things are stabilizing a little bit, that people now start to try and focus a little bit on whether it's reproducibility or robustness of, of pipelines and testing. It still feels a little bit kind of wild, wild west in terms of how people implement things. And um, there are kind of hacky ways to find out whether things are working the way that you, you would want them to. Um, I imagine that will improve somehow. Yeah, yeah, I think the where I see some improvement now in the last year or two is there was a period of people sort of like acknowledging and identifying the core problem of reproducibility in machine learning, which is things like we have these large artifacts like data, data is compiled into the weights effectively. That was not that's now something that you'll hear in lots of ml sort of like educational settings and maybe was not something that was on people's radar um five years ago or seven years ago and so people like like maybe starting five years ago became aware of these problems and identified these problems but when you first identify the problem i think people tend to reach for this like very purest solution to the problem like oh that means we track data in version control and data is in our git store um and that's that like that very very literal approach that very very purest approach is often ends up introducing new problems that maybe make it worse than what you had before and that was maybe kind of one of the core themes of the testing and troubleshooting lecture uh was that you want to introduce testing in order to make what you build better and build better faster, rather than introducing testing so that you can hit 100% test, test coverage, um, because that's what the cool open source repos do. Uh, and that was a difficult realization for me as somebody who comes from science, has a like a strong math background, like precision and correctness are things that I highly value, but they are in the end, not the like core goal in um, in building these things. Uh, and so I feel like in the last couple, uh, last year or two, people have started to try and build workflows around data testing and around, um, and around reproducibility that are less pedantic about like, I need to have a Docker container that runs exactly the same analysis that you ran um, and is guaranteed to produce exactly the same thing and sort of loosening that in a way that still solves these core problems of data, like the top line data science or, or machine learning results not being reproducible six months or a year later, um, but without these uh, sort of blowback effects or these um, second order uh, effects of of tripping over our own guide wires yeah and I, I mean i really i really appreciated the kind of the practicality of what you were talking about i guess the other area where the, a lot is being done in that respect is kind of the ways that uh people are kind of bootstrapping data annotation now and um mm -hmm. and all sorts of different ways are, are kind of 
becoming more and more common and just built into standard practices around that. Yeah, 100%. I think that's maybe something I would love to see more work on. I've not really um, dived deep enough in this to be aware of what's going on right now. But it does feel like if data annotation were built more directly into people's organizational and technical workflows, um, I think Shreya Shankar was one of the people who suggested on Twitter that you have an on-call rotation to annotate data every week um, or every day, maybe, depending on how much data you get. Uh, that seems like that, plus it's easier to just like have data that you are playing around with in a Jupyter notebook or on the command line and be able to f like sort of like flag and update annotations. Um, the, both these sort of like cultural and technical changes to make data annotation more central feel like something that really can improve uh, improve machine learning and deep learning over the next the next decade. And I think this is to some extent a an ideological retreat for for deep learning. There was a belief because deep learning allowed you to avoid the intense feature engineering that was required of earlier. Um, earlier tools, like I still learned some computer vision that involved like SIFT uh, features and Laplacian pooling pyramids and all this stuff that required really deep engagement with, with, you know, signal processing and the statistics of natural images and all this stuff. You no longer necessarily need to learn about images at that level of depth to build a, uh, to build a successful computer vision model. However, having that that level of of knowledge and engagement with your with your inputs and your outputs be they images be they text um and some domain expertise even if you're not using it to do feature engineering incorporating it into the way you think about and build your models i think is going to be really critical um there's quite a few linguists and uh, and language experts involved in the building of these large language models uh, and i don't think that's an accident yeah, and I, I see that change coming in in the world of tooling at least. Like maybe it, it's just kind of starting, but um, you know, obviously you have this this vanguard of annotation tools, which are kind of edging into all of the rest of the stuff that's involved in ML, and then you have all of the ML and MLOps frameworks, which are kind of trying to take a bite out of annotations. I think at some point those yeah. two things will naturally coalesce. Yeah, and I think actually the the place where I see there being a real opportunity is the move over towards continual improvement and like continual learning. The um, Google released a paper on their ad click through rate uh, models uh, from the factory floor. I think is the the fun title of that one. Uh, awesome paper, really cool stuff. One of the things that's most stood out to me was that their training is one hundred percent streaming based. Like data is streaming in constantly and they are constantly training models on that data. Uh, that is more challenging to set up when you have human in the loop annotation, but not impossible. Um, and is more challenging to set up when you have less data, but not impossible. And that looks to me like a promising future for continual, uh, continually improving machine learning. Um, it's an opportunity to design better algorithms for kind of automating uh, and uh, and managing components of that, and it's also would require this kind of like annotation, and and uh, it would make the data a lot more sort of central to the process because the model would be more clearly an artifact produced by the data uh, and less 
uh, it would feel less like its own independent artifact that gets like deployed or, or put places. Um, to put on the full like Martin Kleppman hat uh, of designing data intensive architectures, it's sort of a materialized view of your data. It is um, uh, if you if you turn your database inside out, um, and then then it's extremely clear that um, data and for machine learning that means in most cases some form of annotation or augmentation uh, with humans that is very clearly the central artifact there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so we like to finish our these kind of conversations podcasts with with a couple of questions. Um, feel free to take it in whatever direction you'd like. Um, so the first of them, uh, what would be a quick win that someone can add add into what they're doing to to make their productionizing of models more robust? So uh, I feel like I have to make a conflict of interest statement before I answer this question, which is that I worked at Weights and Biases for two years as an early employee, but it feels to me like experiment management has become a very mature component of the machine learning ops pipeline. It, it feels more mature than a lot of other aspects uh, around productionization and around deployment. And one of the benefits of a mature tooling stack is high level integrations and quick wins. And so it's super straightforward to get a hold of something like MLflow or weights and biases and incorporate it into your uh, your training and evaluation and deployment framework and see, I would say, like immediate benefits. Uh, so just around like preserving git state that is things, not just like which branch was I on, but what was the hash and what was the diff? It capturing like the diff between the disk state when you executed an, an experiment and the Git version control state. That has like helped me catch really weird distributed training Heisen bugs and also like uh, saved me from accidentally deleting data or like losing a machine and losing work. Um, those things are just like such incredible productivity enhancers. Like I think of them as as almost like safety nets. Um, like I would not want to be a trapeze artist without a safety net. Uh, and I would not want to be a machine learning model productionizer uh, without experiment tracking and experiment management. Yeah, especially given how easy it is to set up, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's a no brainer. Uh, and what would kind of one part of the... Um, the whole process of putting models into production that you feel has been neglected somehow or should be given more attention by people who are building tools uh, in this space? Yeah, I feel like we touched on a lot of these in the course of our discussion around things that, like places where tooling was good, places where tooling was not good. But at the same time, it feels like none of them are neglected. I feel like it's hard for me to say like anybody's neglecting this because it really feels like there are people working on all of the problems that I that I can identify with building and deploying machine learning models, whether that's new features of AWS SageMaker or whether those are new startups working on these problems. It feels like people are thinking about and working on making inference better, making inference uh, more uh, high level, more plug and play, uh, making it more portable. Um, it feels like there are people who are working on making data annotation more central to your machine learning model uh, workflow. 
maybe I could rephrase it slightly. What are the things which your students struggle most with all of this uh, in terms of the, mm. the tools? Yeah, that's a great question. Where are people struggling the most? Yeah, actually, so what I would say is that the story for environment setup is still not good. Um, and this is just Python at this point is actually kind of an old language. Um, newer languages have better solutions for package management. Like if you've ever tried to install and compile a Rust project, man, it's just, it's smooth. I I don't have I know one one hundredth of as much about Rust packaging as I do about Python packaging, and I felt more competent, more more empowered. And that also extends to system level libraries. It's still a pain to um, to get the right drivers and um, and libraries installed and linked. Uh, and this just creates friction at a point where friction should not be created. We're we're at the very beginning. Um, we are, we're just getting started and, and people are often at their most vulnerable because they're just beginning this process of learning and they get hit with, you know, some bizarre, uh, low level error. Uh, so I think maybe the place where there is an opportunity for improvement is increasing the ease of use for containers. Um, like right now containers get easier to use every six months in terms of, um, there being more people who know how to use them, there being better tutorials, and there being uh, better abstractions and better tooling, uh, but they still need to get like a couple uh, a couple of notches easier to use before um, they will. Uh, before I would say it'll be you know easy to get going with um, uh, with the right environment, uh, and then I think there's a danger with containers and, and containerized environments of basically papering over bad design. Um, I think I saw somebody say that um, it works in our container is the new it runs on my machine. Uh, and I think that points to like a very like serious potential issue, which is you can kind of engineer your way or into like some Rube Goldberg container that that has exactly what you want but uh, does not evince good engineering principles for like setting up environments that are robust and extensible to, to new problems that you didn't foresee. Um, so I'd want to see maybe both improvements and popularization and internalization of container technology and then also better practices for making these things like robust and usable in things that are not just uh, like Kubernetes clusters where everything is automated, but also in situations where people are treating the container a lot more like they would their home development environment. Yeah, and I guess you you do want to give people an environment, some kind of a sandbox, but you also don't want to make it too too different or too um, too abstracted away from the real world as well, because in the end, you know, people need to will encounter some of this friction and stuff out in industry and in the real world as well. Yeah, exactly. Though I think the there's maybe a hopeful future of development where things are a lot more cloud native um, right. and that allows a little bit of these, these bootstrapping issues to go away um, where you are, because you are deploying to... Um, 
you know, a dev container dot JSON onto GitHub's infrastructure, you don't have to worry as much about Linux user group permissions because they've picked the right defaults for that. Um, or, uh, yeah, you don't have to worry about whether the NVIDIA Docker version can in fact talk to your GPUs or not, because um, that that alignment is set up. Uh, so I, I think that some of this like ease of use stuff, um, we will see as container technology moves from just being primarily about microservices um, or primarily about sort of like maintainability of services in production and starts to invade further the development environment, not just in machine learning, but in uh, in other disciplines. Well, thank you very much for uh, for this great conversation, um, and definitely to to all listeners, I'm sure um, people should should just go and check out the, the the videos and so on. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people, and of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.